You know why? Because everybody's here. So thank you for... uh, (laughs) Yeah, okay, maybe I jumped the gun. (laughs) Yes. No, I was serious until they walked in. Then it kind of blew my head. <laughs> no, I, I want to thank you for, for being on time. Yeah, I appreciate it. We appreciate it. Because, you know, I sit up here kind of nervous, right? And so I'm like, ah, oh, they're late. It's like people not showing up for your party or something. <laughs> so it's nice to, yeah. I have a whole minute before I start. What should we do? <laughs> Who has a riddle? <laughs> So I want, I want to talk tonight about a few things. I have so much I want to share. I feel like I'm bursting. And so I was, I've been writing notes for weeks about this retreat. And then meeting you changed everything, right? And then I threw all those notes away. Because <laughs> first you were just like names on paper and stick figures in my mind. And then you came alive for me, you know? And it changes everything. And so then I took more furious notes and... Um, yeah, I, as, a, as an adult who uh, had some issues when I was younger, which I'll share a little bit of um, in a little bit, um, was completely saved by this practice for the most part, I would say. And uh, so it oftentimes makes me really excited to share it with young people. And um, especially your age, because this is the age that was the hardest for me. And um, there wasn't a whole lot of ground there to land on, or I didn't ha- I didn't know about anything like this. And uh, so that makes me the most excited, to the degree of which you want to listen. <laughs> I have a few things to share, um, but one of the things I want to share first, um, just because I think it's interesting, and some of you might not know um, a little bit about the life of this person that we keep sitting under and sometimes bowing to and uh, talking about sometimes. So this, this was, was a real human being who walked on this planet, we think something like 2,600 years ago. Just like Jesus was a real human and Muhammad was a real human, it, this was not a, um, a deity or a, a, a god that never walked the planet. It was... Um, this man, Siddhartha Gautama, lived in northern India. And it said, so a lot of this is mythology, but so I'm going to tell you what a lot of the scholars and academics have learned and and then since passed down, um, that it said that he was the son of a very wealthy landowner. Some want to go as far as to call him a prince, um, but we do know he was the son of a wealthy landowner, from the Sakya clan in northern India. And so he lived this life in a castle, you know, basically. I'm sure 2,600 years ago they looked a little different. There was probably some mud walls and some dirt floors, right? He wasn't Prince Harry or something. It was more of a, you know, it was a little more rough and rugged. Um, But for, for that time... Imagine, like if you can in your mind's eye, imagine what a wealthy landowner would look like. There was probably a lot of people that lived outside the castle walls, right? There were probably a lot of people that worked for his family and made sure his family was fed and lived well. And so he grew up very wealthy, and he grew up with everything he could possibly want. His father made a point of not letting him be exposed to anything difficult. Like, imagine that, right? So he was a teenager, did not have a cell phone, did not have social media, like was, and, and lived behind castle walls with everything he could possibly want. You know, we could get a little, like we could think that that's all there is, right? Wow, this is good. Life is good. All the food I want, parties, they talk about the dancing girls, and, you know, his life was good. And his dad wanted to keep it that way. And it's said that um, 
there was a rager one night. So there was a huge party. <laughs> and uh, he woke up in the morning and there's just like people, you know, like the women that the night before or the people that the night before were appealing or attractive looked really ugly and unattractive, right? They were probably hungover and the makeup was like, and the clothes were strewn and it to his eyes it was sort of like wow that was fun but outcome not so good <laughs> and and had a moment of saying well okay well i have everything i want i have everything i could possibly need and i'm dissatisfied now what you know, where do i go from here so he had a charioteer <laughs> pre pre pre-cars. Um, he had a charioteer who drove him around <laughs> and he asked this charioteer to take him outside of the castle walls to show him what life looked like because he knew he was somewhat secluded. So he, the charioteer helped him jump the wall, I think, something like that. And, uh, and, and he, he runs into what's called the four messengers, the four divine messengers. And the first one was somebody who was um, old. He'd never seen an old person. The second one was someone who was really sick. Like they were incapacitated. And the third one was, was dead. He'd never seen a dead person. He was this protected. So again, like we're looking at mythology, right? Whether this is true or not, we don't know. Um, but still, it's, it's symbolic. And I'll, and I'll talk more about those messengers so this protection, this idea of thinking that you can have everything and you're still not happy. So he saw those three messengers and was kind of blown away. It upset him. It was disturbing. And then the fourth messenger he saw was this, was this ascetic, this renunciate in robes, in monk's robes. And he was really curious about this person and asked what that was about, head-shaven, holding a ball, and his charioteer told him that this is a renunciate. These people wander the lands with no, no worldly goods, and they practice spirituality. They practice enlightenment, the possibility of enlightenment. And so he, at that point, decided that that's what he wanted to do. At 29 years old, so imagine that was a lot of good living. <laughs> And sometimes when I think about that, I think about us now, you know, it's like that idea of a lot of good living is like the capitalistic sort of, you know, dream, right? Like, what can I buy? How much can I have? iPhone made sure that they didn't last very long, so we'd have to buy another, right? And it's just like this, this way that we think that if we get a lot of stuff and surround ourselves by things or even people, he had people serving him all the time. Yeah, eventually it's dissatisfying. So he decided to, um, to leave. He left the castle. And it said, I have, I have issues with this part of the story. I'm sorry. But <laughs> he had a son. Um, and he left his son and his wife. And um, jumped back over the castle wall and, and went on his journey. And so when I look at us on a retreat, I feel like we're, we're on a journey. You know, we're on a similar journey. And I want, I want to tell you more about his journey. And I want to talk more about our journey. Um, so he jumps the castle wall, runs into one of these ascetics. And he has, he's wearing gold and beautiful gold robes and long hair and he shaves his head he offers the ascetic his clothing and it's exchange for his robes and he's on his way um, and so what ultimately happens I'll, I'll skip certain parts of this story but what ultimately happens is you know so he was somebody who went from having everything this amazing hedonistic life um, and then he went to the extreme of um, almost complete nihilism. It said that in, in some of the, the scriptures, it said that you could see his spine from the front. 
and his skin was like leather and his hair was falling out because he went so far into renunciation that he was only eating a grain of rice a day. Because at that time, it was thought that if you didn't have everything and you gave it all up, that you would ascend, right? That, that that's how you found liberation. And he's like, no, 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 this isn't the way either. So this isn't the way, and this isn't the way. What is the way? And decided to go and sit under what we call the Bodhi tree, which I learned is a ficus tree, which is kind of cool. I have ficus trees in front of my house. (laughs) And he sat. And again, the mythology says that I think it's seven days. Um, I always hate to say definitively because I'm sure there's a scholar who knows better. Um, And when when he came to his awakening, so this was Siddhartha Gautama, We call him the Buddha because the word Buddha means awake. That means to awaken. So upon this awakening, what he realized is there's a middle way. There's a middle path. It's not getting everything. It's not grabbing. It's not craving. It's not clinging. And it's also not pushing everything away and denying and neglecting and not having. It's neither of those. That's not the road to liberation or freedom. That there's a middle path. And, and that middle path is really interesting, and this is what I'm going to mostly talk about, is this middle path, and then I want to tell you a little bit about my story. Um, this middle path that he woke up to was sort of like the veil of illusion got lifted, right? Suddenly he saw the truth, the truth of existence, the truth of reality. And it's not some metaphysical truth, It's not some kind of truth that we can't understand. What the truth very simply was and is, is that, and I'll I'll ask for some of your opinions about this, is that sometimes where life isn't so great. Can we all agree with that? (laughs) We call it the first noble truth. It's called dukkha. Life isn't so great sometimes. And the truth that he saw was that were these messengers that we get we get old, no denying it, right? Like you, you're you're watching your progress in life right now, and you're getting older. We all are, we are. <laughs> if we are, you are. <laughs> it's only fair. <laughs> we get sick. That's just what this human body does, and this human body dies. That's the truth of it. We don't always like when it happens, how it happens, where it happens. We don't get to pick that, we know, but it's going to happen, right? It happens to our pets. You know how I was telling you about my kittens? Did I tell you about my kittens? I told you I got two kittens. (laughs) Anyway, um, I have two eight-week-old. Well, they're not eight weeks old anymore. They're 10 weeks old. And so the first... Probably the second night I had this tiny little girl. She was like a pound and a half. She fell down the grate. Did I already tell you this? Okay. She fell down. Okay, so a heater grate like that. But I live in an old Spanish house, so it's big enough. Clearly she fit in it. She fell down 20 feet into this little chute about this big, straight down. No way to get to it. (laughs) And I come home and I hear this. Like... You know, just like this horrible, like crying to me, please save me. Um, And I'd had her two days. And the boy cat's like, you know, sitting next to the grate trying to figure out where she is. And so I look down there with my flashlight and all I see are these two little eyes staring up at me. And uh, this wasn't even part of my talk, but I'm going to tell it anyway. Because there's like, there was so much suffering in it, for there was so much dukkha in it for me. Because I was pretty sure she was going to die down there. You know, I didn't know what to do. I was like, okay, you call the fire department. That's what you do, right? Like, they get cats out of trees. They surely can get cats out of these places. So I was like, no, 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 that's dumb. They, they won't, they can't do that. So I called the, the plumber. I called, and then I finally went, okay, she's a good climber. 
I need a long rope. And so I remembered, my kids are not not little anymore, they're way old, but there's a jump rope in my garage. And so I ran and got the jump rope, and that wasn't long enough, it's 20 feet, not long enough. So I got a scarf, attached it to it, dangled it down the thing, and she climbed up it. It was so cool. <laughs> it was really cool. I was slowly pulling it, but she got her claws in it because it was a thick rope and climbed up it. So it kind of fits because I was, in a, <laughs> I was in a lot of dukkha. I was in a lot of suffering. And I really did think this cat was going to die. And I was figuring out a couple things, like how I wasn't going to sleep for quite a few weeks because I would feel so terrible, how it was going to smell eventually right? Like all of these things were just coming to mind. And, and if I was going to be able to let go, and I'm not a panicker, like I don't really like get all hysterical. I was hysterical. Like I was really panicked. So like that reality, and I, and then, and my daughter was the one actually who calmed me down. She's like, mom, just take the thing off the grate and da da. You know, she kind of walked me through it. Anyway, point being, We've all, if there, is there anybody in here that hasn't experienced somebody that close to them dying? Whether it's a pet or a person, right? So look around. We all have, so we know, we know that to be true, right? We also know to be true, and I'm going to get some, I'm going to get some feedback here um, from you, <laughs> that we don't always get what we want. Is that fair to say? Yeah. And that sometimes we even get what we don't want. Is that fair to say? Right, so both of those are true. I know for me, for sure, um, that has been a huge part of my life. And what, what really makes me mad about that <laughs> is that sometimes I see, I'll see like really not nice people seemingly getting everything they want. You know, and I see some really, really kind, loving, caring, genuine people just getting screwed all the time. You know, and it's so, so what I found with this teaching is like there's kind of no justice in this teaching. But I'm going to share s- some aspects of the teaching where there are. But in this first noble truth, it's sort of, you know, um, let me, let me tell my story, a little bit of my story, because it'll, it'll make sense about what I'm talking about. So I was, um, I was born, and uh, my, mother's a, my mother's a black woman who was born um, during segregation and the Jim Crow South, but she was born in Harlem. And so my mom's a black woman who was born very, very light-skinned. And so at some point when she learned that she couldn't drink out of the white water fountain, that she couldn't go to the white restaurants, that she couldn't ride the bus, but she looked white enough, she decided she was going to pass for white, right? She has green eyes, light skin. Black people always know she's black, but, but most white people didn't know she was black. Most, some did. So she decided she was going to do that. So anyway, she lived her life like that, and then she had me and my brother and my other brother um, with a man who's Sicilian. So I don't know if you know where Sicily is, but Sicily is southern Italy. And in southern Italy, the people are pretty dark. And they actually use the derogatory term here, the N-word. They call them the N-word of Italy um, because they're so mixed. So my dad has nappy hair and full lips and dark skin. And so my mom, when we were born, she's like, you look like that because of your dad, right? So she, my mom kept passing. She kept passing. Once she had us, she kept passing. Once when I was 15, she was still passing, right? So here I am. Some of you are 15 in this room. And my mom was lying to me about who she was, therefore who I was. So I'm walking around, you know, holding this lie on my shoulders because I, I trust my mom and I believe my mom. And she's telling me that I'm not black. But it was funny because the world saw me as black. I would have people, I mean, as a kid in elementary school, so this is 1965 that I was born, for one. So there wasn't a lot of mixed race people yet then. Um, it wasn't even actually legal until 1964 for blacks and whites to 
even be in a relationship. You could go to jail for that in 1964. So I was born in a time when being mixed race was didn't really happen much in, in this country. And she was protecting me. I know she was protecting me. But I was sort of living this lie. And I, I was a scrapper. I was a fighter. So someone would call me a name and I would fight with them because <laughs> I was defending my lie, right? I was defending my mother's lie. And another thing that happened, and I'm not trying to give you a sob story or a pity story, but my mom also decided she didn't want to be a mom anymore when I was 10. So I went and lived with my dad. So mom moves out. I go live with my dad. My dad's the white one. So I go and live, you know, I'm in, around all white people in the beach area. So lots of like blondes and I love, blondes are beautiful. I'm just saying for me, <laughs> it was like straight blonde hair and, you know, <laughs> they didn't have my booty and they didn't have my lips and it was just a different scene. <laughs> and I'm fighting for my lie, right? I'm fighting for my lie. And I also was feeling really lonely because I, there was like this deep part of me that was like, mm, something's wrong here. Something is off, right? I could see how the world was looking at me. But I had this story that was like confused and mixed up. So I, at 15, I ran away from home. I ran away from home, and I hooked up with a, a punk rock crew, um, and I lived, I, I lived homeless for almost two years, and I lived in garages, and I lived in, um, some of my friends that lived it, at home, I would jump in their windows at night, so they would like let me sneak in their room at night, and they would feed me, and then I would you know, leave really early in the morning before their parents came to wake them up, and I lived that way for a long time. But one of the things that was interesting about that punk rock life is it was, it was for me, it was, mostly white ki- it was mostly white kids. And they were shaving their heads and they were having like these amazing mohawks, like, woo, I mean, tall, like spiky. And, uh, you know, I had my afro. I'm <laughs> like, frohawks were not cool then. So I couldn't go there. Like, I, if only. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> You're like, wah, wah, wah. <laughs> I didn't want to shave my head because nappy hair takes so long to grow. And if I shaved it, you know, it would never grow back. Anyway, talking about a crisis of identity here. Major crisis of identity. And, I, and I'm paralleling the story to the Buddhas, not because I'm awake but because it's that same thing, it's that same story, like, I was, it was unsatisfactoriness, right? I was unsatisfied. My life wasn't working out right. And so I did everything from, you know, I was breaking in houses, I was selling drugs, I, I was doing it all because I was surviving on the street, right? And I did that for a couple of years. And I was not happy for a long time. I, I got off the street and, you know, my parents because of legal issues, had to, had to take me back, basically. Um, and it took me another probably good 10 to 15 years to really um, clean up my act. I never got addicted to drugs or alcohol, which was really interesting, because a lot of my friends at that, at that time, like, meth was the thing. Um, so a lot of my friends were really into all that stuff. But I, for some reason, I, I lived on the street, and I stayed out of the addiction cycle, um, but like I had a huge hole, I had a huge void. Like there was, I didn't, I did, had no idea who I was. I couldn't relate to my race. I couldn't relate to my family. My friends were, <laughs> you know, I mean, they were fun. <laughs> they were real fun, but like the, not people I could count on, you know. So I felt really alone, alone a lot. And you know what, what do we do when we feel lonely? What do we do when we feel scared or, you know, so, so sad, grieving? You know, we tend to try to fill that with something. And when there's nothing, when there's nothing healthy to fill it with, we, we go for whatever's unhealthy. And so I was just, like I said, it wasn't drugs and alcohol for me, but I, you know, I, I related to my sexuality and relationship mostly in, in really unhealthy ways. And again, you know, my stealing and <laughs> all of those things. 
Um, so I'm going to tell you the end of that story in a moment. Um, but lots and lots of years of pain. Um, and, you know, back then, we didn't even have social media, right? So my pain was just like this. It was this internal angst. It was my own angst. It was my family angst. And then, you know, all y'all are bombarded by the visuals of our global situation, right? So you have your own stuff going on in your own heads, in your own families, in your own neighborhoods, right? And then, the, and then like, oh, let's just pile on some more. <laughs> and it's not going to be a little bit more. It's going to be a lot more. We're going to throw some school shootings in there. How about that? You know? We're going to throw a little climate change in there just to, just to stir it up a little bit more. Let's, like, bring white supremacy back. <laughs> you know? School to prison pipeline? Cool. Let's do that. I could go down my social justice list, but I, you, you know what I'm saying, right? Like, equality? Nah, not really. Not really. So we have that. Does anybody want to shout, call something else up that I haven't said that needs to be said? Homophobia, racism. We have so many suicides, overdoses. Please. Um, you look very jealous. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> That's what meditation will do for you. <laughs> <laughs> yes, please, Emma. Thank you. Me too. Thank you. Yes. Yes. I mean, the way that immigrants are treated. Let's separate families and then let's blame the children when they grow up and we put them in prison. <laughs> Right? I didn't mean to get super heavy on you, but it's real. It's what's up. It's not like we close our eyes and we forget, right? Please, did somebody else have a hand up? Yes. In other countries, all the genocide and wrongdoings goes on there. Other countries, all the genocide and wrongdoings. Yeah. So, you know... um, Yeah, I feel for us, you know? And that's one of the beauties of giving up your cell phone on a retreat. Like, if even for a little while, if even for a little while. I, I did one of those foolish things once where I was like, ah, I got to call my kids. I'm going to keep my phone. And so, I, you know, I promised myself it was only going to be for that. Temptation. Wah, wah, wah. I opened it up. And, you know, all it took, I mean, I was doing fine. Like, I was cruising. It was probably, I was probably two and a half weeks into a retreat. I was feeling super calm. I was good. And uh, all it took was one little message about what was going on in the world. And it took me another four or five days to settle again. So... What we're not doing in this practice, we're not trying to hide from what's going on. You know, it's not like, oh, if I don't see it, it's not happening, right? Because that's how it used to be. That's how it used to be. Like, Americans, okay, never mind. <laughs> we are in where the, the pile we're in right now because people were really fine closing their eyes, right? So there's a beauty in the fact that our eyes are open, <laughs> right? And it's also a burden. You know, it's, a, it's, it's, it's also a burden. So here we are. Here we are. We have, we're holding this burden. So we have our own, we have our own, like our friendships, our families, like I said, our neighborhoods. We have society, societal laws that a lot of them don't even make sense. We have beauty myths that don't make sense. 
You know, we have all of these things and then we're supposed to fit in these little square cushions. <laughs> we're, you know, it, and, it, and, ah. and so we wonder why we suffer. We wonder why it's hard when we close our eyes to meditate. You know? It's a hugely courageous act, what you have decided to do. Because when, once the Buddha reached his awakening, they kind of, you know, tripped around for a while. Like, wow, this is, this is great. And, and, and again, so the story goes that um, the Brahmins were like, you must teach this to the people. And he said, no, I don't want to. And you must teach this to the people. I don't want to. And he said, I don't want to because there's too few people that are going to understand. So this is too radical for people, this truth of the way things are. It's too radical for people, my teachings. And then finally, they convinced him. And he ended up teaching for the next 40 years. So wandering around India with um, other you know, people that started gathering around and wanting to hear these teachings that were just like really basic. This is the way it is. We close our eyes, we sit down, we watch our minds, we feel our hearts. It was really very, these very simple teachings of paying attention. But that was too radical for us to understand. Anyway, he ended up teaching. That's why we're sitting here right now. That's why you're sitting there right now. Um, so I'm wondering, I'm curious, like, so here you are, right? Your own personal stuff, global stuff. Some stuff that's not your fault. Most of it, not your fault. Like we're born into a family we don't pick that may or may not have means. We're born into a gender that we don't pick. We're born into skin color that we don't pick. We're born into a country, an era, a time. You know, there's all these ways that all these conditions come together. And they they create you. And here you are. Cool. (laughs) And then you have to deal with it. Right? (laughs) and sometimes you know I don't know I was going to say sometimes we're okay with it but I I wonder you know I I talk to a lot of people a lot of people meaning in this capacity and I think everyone at some point in their life has felt unworthy unsafe low self-esteem, right? I mean, this is normal. Shame. And all those conditions come together and they create our personalities, they create the way we act in the world. They, they create everything, they create our reality. I was realizing that um, <laughs> um, through the help of my dear friend here, that my my reality was created because I felt like I didn't have control of my reality at all. So I took control, right? So like when you don't have control, you're going to take control. And so I'm super bossy and super controlling. I just am. (laughs) It's the way I am because there was a part of me that needed that to survive way back, right? I don't need it so much anymore. Sometimes I need it. But, but one of the things, it, it causes me that old conditioning from all of these w- old ways are some of the parts that I'm unraveling. And so when we start to see that these, these causes and conditions to get, come together, they create us. And then we get to this, here we are and we get to practice with this version of us, right? And so what are some of the ways that we're practicing right now? This is what we're learning to do when we come here is deal with this, all of these aggregate parts that come together that we call us, right? This is me and it feels really super solid. 
And when we sit on this cushion, in some ways, we watch it. If we, if we sit still, we watch it slowly start to unravel. And we realize we don't actually have to believe or play the game or fall in step or see the old way or hold the same biases or hold the same shames, right? Like we realize that if we really look at it, they're all just pieces that, can, that, that fall apart. Do you know what I'm saying? Does this make sense? So um, Jean pointed to three ways that we, that we work with our practice. We work with our pac- practice through, action, through our actions, through our speech, and through certain ways of thinking. Am I done at 8.15? Yeah, okay. <laughs> and so something I really notice... Um, so, so I kind of put that first part of all I was talking about in the things I can't control category. I cannot control that I'm going to age. I cannot control that at some point somebody I love or myself are going to get sick. And I cannot control that I am going to die and everybody, everything and everybody I love is going to die. That I can't control, right? That's like in the I can't control category. In the I can't control category is I'm going to get things that I don't want and I'm going to not get things that I do want, right? There's a lot I can't control. And then I, I, I also like the hope of the practice which points to what can I control. And there's a lot I can control. And I, and I think I asked you last year to help me with that list, and I got some really good... Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm going to ask again. Things, what, are, what are some of the other things that we cannot control? Anybody? Please. What other people think of us. That's right. Cannot control it. And how hard do we try? <laughs> Oof. I'm going, to change, I'm going to change the way I dress. I'm going to change my hair. I'm going to change the way I act even. I'm going to change everything about me so that you like me, right? That's harsh. That's hard. It hurts. You know, it hurts. Yeah. What? I still can't hear you. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> That's right. You cannot control gray hairs. No amount of dye. Because what happens is it grows back. <laughs> exactly. Yes. I wonder. I know. I w- you know what? Maybe 2,000 years ago we could have said yes. But then you put people on the planet who want to like have cars and coal and, you know, eat a bunch of, <laughs> anyway. Yeah, and then we change the planet, right? Then we change the weather. So it's, a... you, oh, you're, okay, okay, okay. I, I, I could, maybe I could learn something from you. No, maybe I could learn something from you. Maybe there's a, maybe there's a distinct difference. I'm willing to, please. Time, yes, can't. It's a tough one. How many times have we wished, oh God, I wish I didn't do that. Like if only like five minutes, you know, just give me those five minutes back. Give me those 10 minutes back. Or 20 years, I'll take that too. (laughs) Can't control the past. No. And how many times do we try to do that? How often do you sit on this cushion and try to control the past? Like we'll replay a story over and over again like it's going to recreate itself. Right? We will do it over and over and over and over and over. Like, I know that if I get enough momentum, I can change my past. <laughs> like, right? 22,000 times the same thought. Like, no, actually, it, it's not going to change. Please. We can't control who loves us. So we can't control who we love and who loves us. Yeah. Oh, oh. Yes. <laughs> what arises in our own hearts and minds in any given moment? Oh, he's a Dharma teacher. Yeah. 
this is one of my favorite ones. I don't know why it's my favorite. It's because I've done it a thousand times and it doesn't, it's just fun. It's like we can't control. So here I'm holding something, right? And if I turn my hand over, what's going to happen? Yeah. And have you ever watched a two-year-old who's like, <laughs> and they do it like, <laughs> like it's like it's not going to happen. So gravity, like we can't control gravity. <laughs> there are these things we can't control. And if we try, we're going to hurt ourselves, right? Like if you try to control gravity by jumping off something too high, you're going to hurt yourself. <laughs> so there are these things that are just true, right? Like natural laws are true. And that was what the Buddha was pointing to. So these certain things that we cannot control are just, they're just true. Like anybody could try to argue them. There's no arguing them. It's just true. And then there's the, like, that I can't control. What I can control, my actions, my speech, certain parts of our mind, the non-volitional parts of our mind. And so... You know, one of my bad habits lately, I did not have a television in my house because after 9-11, my kids got so freaked out from flying that I took the TV out of my house. I did not need them having any more images put in. And this was pre-things that you all have now, right? And so I didn't have a TV in my house for almost 15 years and then got one a couple years ago. So, and then I found Netflix. <laughs> <sighs> And so then I had all this catching up to do, right? Like I'd missed all those years. Like I hadn't seen The Sopranos and I hadn't, like all these things I hadn't seen, I had to like catch up on so I could be in some kind of cultural conversation. <laughs> and what I realized about myself, I started being really lazy <laughs> and I started being like, oh, not picking on my phone. And I was, I started binge watching. I totally started binge watching and it was and one of the things was like, it was fun. It was fun. But I also watched myself get really lazy. And I wasn't doing the things that, that really feed my heart, that really make me feel good about myself. You know, I wasn't getting outside as much. This didn't go on for long, don't worry. <laughs> but I wasn't, I, I wasn't reading books anymore. I, w I was like, oh no, cable TV has replaced literature. Like I was pretty sure, right? And so like all of that, all of that changed. And so I, one of the, then the reason I'm pointing that out is because what we, our actions are, we become. Like what we do. So I became a lazy binge-watching Netflix person. Like that's what I became. I, and I mean, it was, it's kind of funny to talk about, but, but it, was, it was actually, I was starting to not like myself very much, but I had to watch the next Friday Night Lights. Like... <laughs> you know, so it was like, I, I just got hooked. And that's what it's supposed to do. It's supposed to literally hypnotize us. Um, and it's really interesting. Like when I, it took real effort for me to pull myself away and pick up a book and start like doing the stuff again. And now I'm doing the stuff again, which is great. And I'm, I'm happy again. Right, but it was interesting. Like I got really deeply kind of entrenched in this hole. I also noticed when I hang around people that do you ever you know those people that are like negative all the time? Like they always have something bad to say about everybody, everything, every like everything is negative, and we get conditioned by that. We were talking about this earlier, you know. And then you might even start finding yourself starting to talk like them or, yeah, you know, get this attitude. And, and so, like, the actions, like how we move forward in life, what we do matters. It really matters. Who we spend time with, what we spend our time doing really matters because we become more of that. And the same so and true with our speech. Um. I have a brother, I won't name his name, but he, he's a, he was a, what do they call a liar? Like a habitual, pathological liar. I don't know if he was pathological, but he was pretty habitual, right? And so it was just like, every, so you could I could never trust him. I, I could never trust a word he said, and I wanted to, he's my brother, you know, we're only like a year and a half apart. But the way he was speaking, his untruths created a distance, 
When we gossip about other people, it creates an energy. Why, why do we gossip about people? Do we gossip to make ourselves feel better? Right? Like we put somebody down so that we can elevate ourselves. Right? Or we gossip because we think it means we're in the know. Or, or there are, so, so how our speech, how we behave in the world matters. But ultimately, I don't know about you, but if I, you know, I, and maybe it's because I've made my life of it, but if I say something unkind to somebody, like I instantly feel it, you know, I feel it. Like it, it came out and then I'm like, ah, ah, it, hurt, it hurts me, right? I know it hurts them and it hurts me. And so because of that, like watching this, you know, this cycle, it makes me go, oh, maybe I don't want to, maybe I want to work on that. Maybe I want to be more careful. Maybe I want to, you know, watch my actions. And then the mind is the same way. The more, have you noticed the more you think something, the more you think something, right? So it's like, and it just, we, we, there, you know, there's all these scientific reasons why and neural pathways and all these sort of things, but we, we condition our mind in a certain direction. So if that mind, have, you, have any of you obsessed over anything while you've been here? Like that ruminating, you think about the same thing, think about the same thing, think about the same thing. Who has not done that? Let's say, let's put it that way. Uh, so he just told a lie. <laughs> and so if we let ourselves keep thinking about it, guess what happens? We're going to think about it more. That's the way the mind works. It's conditioning. It's sort of, you know, like I, I watched a bunch of you playing sports out there this afternoon and it was so amazing. And your body can do that because you've taught it to be nimble, right? To be strong, to be quick. That doesn't just happen. You have to work at it. You have to move it to, to, to do it. And the, the cellist and the pianist and the, all these people that, that play things it happens because you do it, this mindfulness. And I know I brought this up this morning to Julian. You know, when the more we do something, the better we get at it. So we have to be careful. We have to be really careful. Because if we're, what we're doing, what we're thinking is super negative, harmful, degrading, right? Self-deprecating. If we keep thinking that way, that's what our mind is going to think. And so what this practice helps us do is it kind of, it can pull us out, of, it can help pull us out of the mud. It can kind of help pull us out of the cycle and recondition our mind. So you know all those times you're sitting on the cushion and many of you, I've spoken to many of you about it, the mind goes off, you're thinking, thinking, thinking. Every time you come back, you are reconditioning your mind to be present. You are retraining your mind to learn over just like lifting a weight, right? Just like rehearsing anything, practicing anything over and over. And the more you do it, the easier it gets. That's the good part. Like right now it feels like, ah, this sucks, right? But then the more you do it, and we can all attest to that for sure. I wouldn't, I wouldn't fly across the coast to this beautiful place <laughs> to teach this if I didn't believe it. And so I'm going to quickly just tell where my story ends is, well, here for now. Um, but the practice, what my, my loneliness, loneliness was my trigger, right? Like that was my thing. That's what got me in trouble. Lonely, 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 lonely. And so I kept trying to fill that lonely with everything but myself. And so what the practice helped me do was one, the lonely wasn't as bad as I thought it was, right? Because lonely was, a, was this big built up conceptual idea in my mind. I'm so lonely, you know, my mom left me and I'm home, la, la, la. So it became a big, my big story to tell. But what I didn't realize was when I just like felt the lonely, it's like, okay, what does lonely actually feel like? And this is what the practice did for me. Oh, so my belly, okay, this area feels, hmm. Lonely feels a little hollow, empty right here. Okay, I can, I can handle that. It's not terrible. My heart feels heavy, feels pretty numb. Okay, I can deal with that. 
the second the story would kick in, you're lonely because so-and-so, da-da-da, that's when it got unbearable. But when I just like, okay, empty, hollow here, heart a little heavy, and with that pra- the practices that, that uh, Tasha and Eddie taught us, the heart practices, right? I started working the heart practices, started trusting myself, and that's what I talked about earlier. I could start to trust myself. I wasn't going to make bad moves out of my loneliness because I could hold it. I could hold it. And the weird thing is like, I'm not, I'm not even lonely anymore. You know, like it, it actually, and I'm not saying this practice is just like magic. We still have hard feelings, but that's not one of them for me. So now did it happen in a five day retreat? No, but my pain was so bad that it was worth the work that I needed to do for it. I was not willing to be complacent any longer because I was really hurting myself and I was hurting other people. So my complacency, I had to let it go. So my encouragement to you is that you keep going. That you keep going. Just like, just do it. Just do it. And the thing is, you don't have to do it for this long all the time, right? Like, <laughs> this is an intensive, this is boot camp. Like, this is serious mental boot camp that, you're, that you came to. So it'd be like if you went to a volleyball camp or, a, you know, whatever kind of camps there are. But this is mind camp. That's where you came. You might not have known that, but you did. And so this is what we're working on. We're working on this mind and its relationship with our heart and our body and the world. So try it. You know, just like give yourself that opportunity for freedom because that's one thing nobody can ever take away from me. Like nobody can take my practice away from me. Everything else can be taken away from me. Everything, but not that. So I think I'm going to end there. I hope that was useful in some way. And... Snack. Yay. <laughs> and then groups. Yay. <laughs> Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.